Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Respected elders, brothers in Islam. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran, He succinctly summarizes the human condition. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Inna insana That we as human beings, we have been created in such a way that if I can give a loose translation, we very self-obsessed. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala explains and He says, that if any evil comes upon this person, upon a human being, then even if it's just a little bird, something that could possibly threaten his livelihood or his family or even his fame and reputation, immediately he's in a panic. And وَإِذَا مَسَّهُ الْخَيْرُ مَنُوعًا If some, even a little bit of good comes to him, then his immediate instinct is that he wants to have it and no one else must have it. That's how the human being. And because of this, it affects the way we view the world. It affects the way we view incidents, we view history, we view time and place, we tend to view it from only our perspective. So a person could make a statement like this and he could say, no, you know what, the economy is doing fine because my business is doing well. Or a person could say like, you know, this area is a safe area. I walk there every day and nothing happened to me. It's a very safe area. So what is he doing? Based only on his individual experience, right? And Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, in the Quran and the Hadith, Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam tried to make us think more as a collective unit, make us think more as an ummah, then only thing as an individual. So the Quran says, "Inna al-mu'minuna ikhwa." All of the believing Muslims are like brothers. Nabi sallallahu alaihi wasallam says, "Al-mu'minuna karajulin wahid." All of the believers should consider themselves as one being. Sallam says, "Al-mu'minu bil-mu'mini kalbuniyan yashudu ba'duhu ba'ba." The believers are like parts of a building, each one strengthening the other. So teaching us that you don't only view things from your perspective, but you have to view things from the perspective of an ummah. And where we see this coming into play 
in our daily life here is when we want to judge the success or failure of Islam, when we judge it based only on an individual basis. So for example, you say, you know, mashallah, Islam is doing very well here because alhamdulillah we have masajid, we have Muslim schools, we have masatir, we've got so many things happening here, so Islam is doing very well. And that's true, it's, it's, it's a very true statement. But you're only looking at things from an individual level. When do we, when we look at the success or failure of Islam, how often do we look at it on the level of, of as an ummah? You know, as a, as a Muslim community, how far have we taken Islam to this country? As a Muslim community, all of the laws that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has revealed in the Quran, they were not only for the individual, they were for the society, they were for the family, they were for the community, they were for the government. How likely are we in the future to ever implement these laws? Eh? How likely are we to use the moral code and guidance in the Quran and the Hadith to bring justice to this land that we live in. So sometimes when we want to judge the success and failure of Islam, we only look at it from an individual aspect and we judge that it's successful, which Alhamdulillah it is, but then we neglect to look at it from our total perspective, from group things. Like as an ummah, how successful are we doing? How successful are we in this? And if a person wants to epitomize how perfect the religion of Islam is, it can be done by looking at the life of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa The Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa from every single benchmark you want to use, whatever barometer, whatever marker you want to use, Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa was successful. So he was successful as a spiritual leader. He was successful as a social worker. He was successful as a leader of a community. He was successful as a military leader. He was successful as someone who controlled the economy of his state. He was successful as a father, as a husband. In every single aspect of life, Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa brought something to the table that no one in history has ever been able to do and no one will be able to do. So maybe in history you had some people that were great conquerors. Maybe in history you had some people that were spiritual leaders. But never in history did you have this complete, you know, complete package in one person. Every single aspect of life. And that for us can help us to understand how complete and perfect Islam is supposed to be. But Islam is not only on a spiritual level. Islam is not only... Uh, on a family level. Islam is on every single level, including the governmental level. Now when you look at Islam, when it just started spreading, Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is giving dawah, going to Fa'id, the Hajj fairs, eventually taking Islam to Medina Munawwara. Then the laws begin to come down now, Salah, fasting, etc. Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sets up an Islamic state, all of these things are happening. When the Quran is being revealed in this time, the laws that are being revealed are not only for individuals. The Quran that is coming down, the laws that are being revealed are for the individual, the community and the state as well. The example of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in those times is not only for the individual, it's for the individual, the society and the state as well. When Islam now begins to spread after Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, going throughout the world, going to Spain, going to Uzbekistan on the other side, throughout Africa, etc. This Islam that spread wasn't only an individualistic Islam. It was an Islam that ruled every single portion of your life. That's why when the Muslims went to Spain, the Jews who were there actually assisted them to come and take over Spain because they knew the laws of governance that were ingrained into the Islamic system were such that would bring justice to them. So this was the Islam that spread. This was the understanding of Islam. That Islam is not only for us here in the masjid and in the house. It's for the entire state. That was what it was. That was what it always had been. And if you want to just if you want to use two markers to judge how successful Islam was, you know, the spreading the laws, all of these things in bringing justice, I'll just give you two examples scattered from history. The first is a very famous economist by the name of Adam Smith. Anyone who studied economy, they know Adam Smith, right? Adam Smith, he says, this is his quote, he's not a Muslim, he's saying that the first time in history that mankind witnessed a level of economic stability 
that allowed for scientific advancements, etc., was in the time of the four rightly guided khalifas. This is what Adam Smith If you want to take another example to show how successful these laws of Islam were when they were, when they were really implemented on every level, you can look at a town that's located on the border of Texas and Mexico. It's called Matamoros. And Matamoros means Muslim killer. And this was in around the 1400s. That when the Europeans went there to North America, the dominance of Islam, the awe that was in their hearts of Islam, the way it was growing, was such that wherever they went, they only saw Islam, they could only think about Islam. And Christopher Columbus, when he goes there, he says, I can see masjids here, even though Islam wasn't there. He's saying that, why? Because his whole thought was dominated by Islam. He couldn't find any way out of it. That's why they named a town like that, Muslim Philip. So can you imagine the global impact that Islam had when it was practiced on every single level? Sometimes maybe we, you know, we have a false understanding of history that when the colonizing powers came, they had guns, that's why they managed to take over the world. There's no such thing. Before any of those powers existed, the three gunpowder empires known in history are three Muslim empires. Ottomans, the Safavids, uh, and the Mughals. You know, so sometimes we don't understand just how dominant Islam was in history in every single aspect. Right? Allah knows best, that's a topic for another time, eventually Islam began to decline, the Khilafah was taken away, and those Muslims who are living in these countries now, who were previously, they were practicing Islam on every level, on a state level, on an economic level, on a family level, on an individual level, now all of those other states were taken away, all of those other levels were taken away, now they just have to preserve Islam on an individual level, and the ulama did that amazingly, they preserved the aqidah of the people, they preserved the salah, etc. And when Islam was now taken to other different parts of the world, like South Africa, we saw still the ulama preserved the salah, the aqidah, and everything it was preserved extremely well, alhamdulillah. But during that time, it's important that we as an ummah never ever forget that as Muslims, we have something more to do, we have, some, we have a bigger part of our life to express Islam in than just on the individual. That's something that we should never forget. And in order for us to revive this, to understand this, to bring this in our lives, we need to look again at the Sunnah of Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi That sometimes when I say, if I tell someone, you need to practice on the Sunnah of Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, certain things they come to his mind and other things he doesn't even think of. And we need to revive those things. So for example, one of the greatest Sunnahs of Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam was what? That when you're in a land, you spread Islam to every single person in that land. But in the 23 years that Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, since he received Wahi and when he passed away, he spread Islam, he made sure the entire Arabian Peninsula was there. He spread the message of Islam to Egypt, below, to North Africa, to the West, to Persia, in an age where there was no social media. What a great sunnah of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam to spread Islam to the land that you live in, to make it a majority Muslim country. This is a great sunnah of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And where do we, do we, how often do we see the sunnah being implemented around us? We need to think about it. You know, people often ask that why were the Bani Israel favored over all other nations? Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran says, وَأَنِّي فَضَّلْتُكُمْ عَلَى الْعَالَمِينَ I favored you over everyone else of your era. And the Quran gives the answer to this, and it's, it's an answer that makes so much of sense. The Quran says, وَأَوْفُوا بِعَهْدِي أُوْفِ بِعَهْدِكُمْ That this favor on the Bani Israel was coupled with a promise and, 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 and an obligation and a covenant that They're going to spread Islam, they're going to spread Tawheed that they had, it was revealed to them They're going to spread it throughout the world And you still see this in the Bible today Where it says they're supposed to be a light for the Gentiles So There was the obligation, there was the duty And because of that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says You have a great responsibility and I'm going to favor you But historically the Bani Israel never did this they never spread Islam 
uh, they, they never spread the tawheed. It, it remained in that one area and never spread throughout the world. And that is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala transferred all of those promises that he gave to them. And together with the promises, he transferred the responsibility onto the ummah of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And that is why the ummah of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and this transferal is signified, you can see it in the seerah, when the qibla is changed now from Masjid al-Aqsa, it's changed to the Kaaba, Makkah al-Mukarramah. Signifying what? All of those promises that were there now have come here. The fact that you are now the, 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 the favored nation is now come to the Ummah of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa But together with that favor comes that responsibility. And that is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says this in the Quran. Now you are the best of people. But why ukhrijat nas? You have been taken out from mankind. How the Bani Israel? They were supposed to explain it to the people but they didn't do it. But now it's your job. Call people to Islam. Forbid them from kufr and shirk. That is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling us here. So what a great sunnah of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa Another great sunnah of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa is uniting the people. And when Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa came, the Ansar were divided, they were fighting, they were warring. Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa brought unity amongst them. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala brought unity amongst them. Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa commanded the hijrah. All of the people had to come to one place, Medina Munawwara. They had to have a central governing system. That's a great sunnah of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa a great sunnah of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa also is to have a military that is up to date technologically. When Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa the Muslims were surrounding Ta'if, then Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sent two sahaba, Urwa bin Mas'ud and Ghilam bin Salama al thaqafi to go to Syria and to learn and to bring siege equipment and siege technology to the Muslims in Medina Munawwara. It's a great sunnah of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa A great sunnah of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa is to have an intelligence system also. It very rarely people ever attack Medina Munawwara except the Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa knew about it. But Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa when he attacked people, they, they didn't know about it. Because it's the great sunnah of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa A great sunnah of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa is to create economic freedom in a place that you live in. When Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa comes to Medina Munawwara, there's four marketplaces. Two run by the Jews, two run by the, the politicians. Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa can see there's high barriers to entry. Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa can see that these marketplaces are controlled. So Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa tells the Muslims, we'll start our own marketplace. Look at that, what a great sunnah of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa But the, the tragedy is sometimes when we say sunnah, only certain things are coming to our mind. But all of these things, sometimes we don't even think about it. A great sunnah of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is to make sure that the people are educated. Educated to an extent that you don't have to rely on anyone else. That when Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa had to rely on the Jews to translate his messages, he was saying to Zayd bin Sabit to learn the Hebrew language. Why? Not because he just needed to learn Hebrew. Because we don't want to be dependent on anyone else. The Muslim Ummah can function independently. Look at these great sunnahs of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa A sunnah of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa is to make sure that the population can defend itself. That the population knows how to fight. The population knows how to go out in jihad. It's a great sunnah of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa A great sunnah of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa is to control the way the people think in the way that the media does today. Islam was doing it well before that. If you think about the Quran, it was so catchy that young children should just be reciting it wherever they went and people would just be hearing the, the words of the Qur'an because it was so catchy. It was as though it was like a mass media sort of control. Nabi sallallahu had Hassan bin Sabit recite poetry on the member to spread throughout the lands to make the Muslims appear strong in the minds of people. This was controlling the media on the side of Nabi sallallahu It's a great sunnah of Nabi sallallahu And so there's many, many more sunnahs like this that sometimes we just forget about it. We need to think about our Islam, how we view our Islam, how we view Nabi sallallahu and the greatest disservice we can do sometimes through the life of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa is when we compartmentalize this When we 
compartmentalize the effect he had on humanity. And we say, no, it's only for here, and here it's not for the entire sphere of humanity. See, if you look in history, when the colonial powers came to the Muslim land, France went to Egypt in 1998, the British went to India. When they went there, they didn't operate like the Soviet Union, who would come later and tell the Muslims, become murtad, leave your religion. Uh, if anyone's seen what the Quran is going to kill you, they didn't do that. They said, no, 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 you can practice Islam. You practice Islam, you're not going to stop. But you practice your Islam in your home, you practice your Islam in a masjid, and if you want to, the British said, we'll set up some Islamic courts for you also, but use that. You can practice your Islam there. But now, the governing, the economy, the justice, ruling the land, you leave that to us. So they came with this, this understanding, this proposition. And of course, it seemed like a good bargain, at least we're still willing to practice our Islam. But now we still see the repercussions and the remnants of that sort of thinking today, that our Islam must just be limited to here and here, and mustn't be for the entire sphere of humanity. So how we see that, we see that exhibited in... When a person says, for example, that you know what, we have the truth. So we'll always say that in Islam, in the Quran and the Hadith, there's the solutions for the entire mankind. The solutions are there. The solutions to your entire life, to anyone's problems, is in Quran and Hadith. But when the time comes now to implement it, we say, no, let the non-Muslims run the land, let them uh, enact justice, let them run the economy. But you claiming that you have the solutions, you claiming that you have uh, all of the eternal principles in here, but you have to let other people run. So how can that make sense? So that is a remnant of this sort of thinking where we said, no, when the colonial powers came, let them run that and we'll keep our Islam here. Another remnant of that you can see is that in the time of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, the mushrikeen of Makkah, even though they were dominant, they were so scared of Islam coming into contact with anyone, and the Quran speaks about this, that they would plot and plan and think, how are we going to stop people from coming into contact with Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam? Because one person just has to con- come into contact with Islam, he'll accept Islam. So their whole worry and their fikr was, you know, if any one person comes into contact with Islam, Islam is so obviously true, it's so obviously haq, it's just going to overtake everyone. But now if you look at our mindset today, we are thinking, no, we have the haq, but if we just come into contact with someone else, we'll get affected, they won't get affected. See how the thing has flipped and changed. And another way we see this happening is, when, as I just mentioned, when we say Sunnah of Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, it's only limited to a few, a few things. Whereas the Sunnah of Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam was completely covering your entire life. And when these great Sunnahs of Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, Islam spreading, Dawah, Jihad, having a Khilafah, having an Islamic State, having a military, when these Sunnahs of Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam are taken away, when the Muslims are no longer in power, then necessarily, of course, a non-Muslim force will come in, a force of Batil will come in. And then you see that the powers that are supposed to be enacting justice in the world today, they are now airstriking Yemen instead of worrying about the children that are dying in Palestine. Why? Because the Muslims said, no, we're not going to do it. So now someone else comes in. If you don't take control, people will take control for you. Now you see that we as Muslims, we are supposed to be the ones enacting justice, but we have to file an application to the International Court of Justice to do something. Inshallah, Allah will help South African lawyers. It will be a way of dismantling the, the apartheid state of Israel in the long run, inshallah, we make dua for that. But the, the, the proper lesson from that is what? We were supposed to be running that in the first place. We were not supposed to be filing the application. People were supposed to be filing applications to us. That was the way that it was supposed to be. So, this is something we need to understand, that when these sunnahs are lost, then we're going to keep seeing this. And let us not have a short memory. Yes, maybe we're only 30, 40, 50 years old. But ever since these sunnahs have been taken away from the ummah, when we've been seeing massacre after massacre, in 1945 in Algeria, 30,000 people dead in one week. In 1857 in India, how many thousands of people were killed there? We've been seeing it over and over and over and over again. And the only way all of this is going to stop is if we revive all of these sunnahs. And the only thing that's stopping us from reviving all of these sunnahs is not the West, is not the non-Muslims, it's only ourselves. 
with our own self-limiting belief. That is, if all of the Muslims today have to unite and say we're going to dismantle the state of Israel, we'll get dismantled the next week. If all of the Muslims of South Africa and Durban have to unite and say we want this country to become a Muslim country in the next 20 or 30 years, inshallah, the evening light will happen. There's nothing stopping it from happening except your own belief. Think about it like this if you understand what the self-limiting belief When you see a lion attacking a, a group, a herd, that's what we call a confusion of wildebeest. And it takes one of the wildebeest. And there's 50, 40 of them there. If they just join together, they'll crush that one lion. Nothing, nothing can stand in the way from crushing that lion. But because their own self-belief is saying that we can't do it, we can't do it, we can't do it, the lion takes the one into and carries on. And similarly, the Ummah has immense potential. We have the potential to, here in South Africa, make this country a Muslim country. Think about it, right? Nothing, what is stopping us from all of the leaders of the Muslim community getting together, saying, okay, you know what, our, our country here in South Africa, we have so many different uh, local people, let's get ulama in these 20 uh, different, you know, 20, 30 ulama in these languages, spread Islam slowly, portion by portion, systematically. Nothing is stopping us from doing that. Nothing whatsoever. Only ourselves. If we really have to do it, if we really have to harness the potential of this ummah, then I promise you nothing can stop us. But if we need to understand ourselves firstly, and this was the great immense gift that Nabi Wasallam gave the ummah, is that he came to a nation where previous nations, when they passed Arabia, they didn't even give it a second thought, you know. No one ever thought that people coming from Arabia would ever conquer the entire world. But Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, before they conquered the entire world, he turned this thought of people from Arabia taking over the entire world, he turned it from being something that was unthinkable. But if you told anyone that this is going to happen, they'd have you talking nonsense. He turned it in a space of less than 20 years from something that was unthinkable to something that was inevitable. And by the time that Nabi Sallallahu before he passed away, the Sahaba radiallahu anhu knew we're going to take over Persia, we're going to take over, they knew we're going to do this. They may not have known exactly how, the specifics, and all of this here, but they knew that this is going to happen because this is what Islam is. When it comes to a place, when it comes to the world, it's spread. So my respected elders, brothers in Islam, we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for tawfiq. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for the ability to see Islam for what it really is. For us to unite, come together. And inshallah, nothing will stop us. It, it's nothing far-fetched that in 30, 40 years from now, Farafika will be a Muslim.